Hello and welcome to the Football Collective Podcast. The Football Research Podcast for debate and discussion, highlighting members of the collective, their research and all football related things in their life. The new season is just about to start now. At the time of recording this, Reading will play Derby tonight with Frank Lampard coming in, trying to clear out a little bit of dead wood, even trying to sell Matty Vidra to Leeds United to try and clear a bit of that money. Only last summer, actually, on this day, we saw Neymar sign for around €200 million, a a figure that none of us really saw coming within the football world. And now with financial fair play, possibly messing up the season of a few championship teams before it's even started, who better to have on the podcast than Kieran Maguire to talk to us about finance within football. How are we, Kieran? Calm the sound. How are you, Josh? I'm very good. Um, First of all, obviously the season's starting now. Uh, Are you looking forward to it? Yeah, just like any fan, uh, you, got, you always got hopes and dreams before the first kick of the first match, um, and then at the end of August, you, half half the time you're calling for the manager's head or <laughs> thinking that whoever we've signed has, been, has turned out to be an absolute turkey. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm very excited. I mean, even at my age, you know, I'm nearly sixty now, but I'm just just like a kid at Christmas when it comes to the start of the season. So, for those who might not know too much about you, are you alright just to give us a bit of, about your background, your research, where you're currently based now, um, and, and what you're what you're doing, and, and how you got into that? Right, well, I'm at uh, I'm at the University of Liverpool at the management school there, um, and I'm part of the the football industries group. So, I, I teach on the the football MBA course, and I've also managed to persuade the uni to. Uh, let me teach an undergraduate module on football finance. And yeah, the kids absolutely love it to bits because you're not going to sign up for it unless you love football. Um, and to, to give them an explanation as to how their team's performing off the pitch is uh, is always a benefit to them. Um, I, I sort of came into this purely through accident because I was doing a bit of training for an investment bank one summer um, and it was the day that uh, the, the, that Manchester United were acquired by the Glazers, and I was working at the bank who were involved in the deal. Uh, so I was uh, I was teaching at MMU at the time, and the BBC phoned up uh, the uni and said, "Can anybody talk about this?" And uh, they said, "Well, Kieran knows a bit about you know, financial deals, and, and he's football mad." So I ended up going on to do a few radio interviews and it's just sort of spiralled on from there. Um, I've sort of pushed and pushed to specialise in in football finance and do reports on clubs and valuations and FFP nonsense and so on. Um, And most of the time I found I've been pushing against an empty door because uh, accountancy is boring, finance is boring, but football isn't. So... So it's sort of a bit of a Trojan horse what I do. I actually teach fairly standard stuff, but you, you dress it up. That instead of you know instead of going out and buying a new piece of machine, you go out and buy Neymar, and, and people's ears prick up, and it goes on from there. Hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not particularly research active because I'm, I'm on a teaching and learning scholarship uh, program uh, at, at Liverpool, so I just, just spend all my time talking about football. That sounds like the dream, to be honest. Uh... But we've mentioned Neymar, and obviously I mentioned him in the introduction. Uh, PSG last summer, they kind of looked like they got around the financial fair play. Whatever financial fair play is, we'll get onto that. But they brought in uh, Mbappe, and they're bringing in all these players, and obviously they're signing Neymar for such a substantial amount of money. Can you tell us a bit more about what financial fair play is and why getting Mbappe in on loan could have got around that? and, And basically, where financial fair play came from, and what does it mean to clubs? Well, 
financial fair play is, is different things to different people in different divisions. It was originally brought in by UEFA because they feared uh, that they feared a breakaway by the established elite. And one of the things that old money fears most of all is new money. So the likes of Real Madrid and Barcelona and United and Bayern, they, they didn't like the idea of rich new owners coming into clubs such as PSG and Manchester City and taking away um, the players that they thought were theirs by rights. Yeah, there used to be relatively few clubs who were able to compete in the transfer market at the elite level. So financial fair play was, was introduced to to try to put a, a restriction on the amount of money that uh, an owner could put bring into a football club by focusing on profitability. Um, you know, now, my, my original background was I, I qualified as an accountant many, many years ago, and uh, I used to specialise in uh, sort of financial distress. So I, I know that companies only go bust if they run out of cash. And, and, the, and the one thing that PSG and Manchester City are not short of, of course, is cash. So there, there's, a, there's, there's a bit of smoke and mirrors when it comes to FFP. Uh, but the, the broad issue, is, as far as UEFA are concerned, in their competition, is that they they say that over a, over, over a period of time you've got to break even in terms of being able to generate profits, um, and and that that in terms of PSG that allows sort of the the accountants and the lawyers to start arguing about exactly what we mean by profit because it's it's a bit like the meaning of life or love. You, you, you're not, it's actually quite difficult to define. Uh, so uh, so it, what has happened is that when UEFA have pushed PSG uh, in terms of some of the most recent signings, they've, they've pushed back and said, well, we don't think we've uh, exceeded the rules, um, exceeded the limits, and here's an accountant who will agree with us. So I read something the other day around uh, player amortisation, that that's a way that clubs can get around that. Can you explain... And tell us a bit more about that and, and how clubs use that now in the, the years of financial fair play. Sure. Well, what, what player amortisation means is that if, if you sign a player such as Neymar, uh, so he was signed for €200 million, Euros, um, or was it 220 We're never actually quite sure of the figure. But amortisation is, is a way of spreading that cost so it doesn't hit against your profits in a single year. So the way that it works is that he signed a five- or a six-year contract, So if you, if you, you, and therefore 200 million euros spread over five years works out as 40 million euros a year. That's still a, you know, a pretty sizable sum of money, but it's actually quite manageable. Um, and it's no more than Manchester City or Manchester United actually spent themselves in the last transfer window. Um, so on, on top of amortisation, you've, you've got the players' wages and you add those two together. And that, that's your total player cost, which is, uh, which is set off against the income that the club generates. Now, what you can do with amortisation is that if you extend the players' contract... And, and this is what's happened. If you think about what's happened with uh, Liverpool and Mo Salah, um, yeah, they signed him from Roma for 38 million. He was originally on a, on a five-year contract, and now he signed a, you know, a longer contract. So you've now got a, you know, you've got a figure of uh, a figure of 38 million being spread over six years instead of five. So there's, there's lots of ways of reducing your your costs. Uh, in terms of amortisation, and, and it is open to abuse. Uh, yeah, there, there are some clubs that really are pushing the envelope quite uh, 
quite far in terms of uh, being creative with the numbers. So I won't try and get you into trouble by asking which which those clubs are. So we'll move on from that before I get <laughs> before I get tempted to go go and tell us. But uh, so especially for me looking on the inside, just to, as a fan of a club that's in the, the AFL, um, the financial fair play rules seem to be a lot stricter in, stricter sorry within the AFL than arguably other leagues, such as even the Premier League. If we're just talking about England. Um, what differences are there, uh, if there's any, um, and why do these rules seem to affect the teams more? I mean, in the Championship, we've just got recent developments at QPR. Villa have been in the spotlight trying to get rid of uh, players all summer, trying to shell out players. And you've got Birmingham as well. We've even resorted to having Gary Monk stood in front of a, a new dustbin sponsors as, as trying to get something out there for the fans, which has only angered them further. But how comes the EFL especially just the championship, why is it just eating teams up with, with in terms of finance? Well, I think if you take a look at the EFL as a whole, there's actually three different sets of rules. Uh, in, in League One, you're restricted to spending 60% of your total income on the player wage budget. So, and that's actually worked quite well because... When was the if you think about it? When was the last club that actually went into administration? It was Coventry City, which was four four years ago. Uh, but when previous to that, there was, was sort of it was quite a, it was getting quite nasty at times. Uh, yeah, there could be up to half a dozen clubs going bust in a year. In League Two, it's you're only allowed to spend half of your, your income on player wages. So that that's how it works in those two divisions. I, I think in terms of the championship, which is sort of the the the, uh, the division you're probably alluding to most of all, um, it's 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 a bit like the, the Cape of Good Hope. It's where two you've got two sets of uh, ambitions crashing together. You've got the clubs who've just been relegated from the Premier League with their parachute payments, and then you've got the other clubs in the in the championship, many of whom have now got overseas owners who are very ambitious, um, and, and they want to, of course, see their clubs go, go up to the, the Premier League. And, and in the uh, championship, uh, you're, you're restricted to a loss of £39 million over three years. Now, that, that, that sounds like a lot of money, but if you take a look at the wages that the clubs are, are paying, in the in the uh, championship and, and last season it worked out that for every hundred pounds of money coming in the, the the clubs were paying out on average 98 pounds in wages and some clubs were, were paying you know 160 or 170 pounds for wages so it was it, it, it's an it's an issue in in the uh, the championship because to a certain extent owners get giddy especially the new owners they, they see the riches of the Premier League and yeah that's an extra 100 million pounds a year and they say well we're just going to go for it and we're not going to worry about uh, financial fair play because if we get promoted um, it, it becomes a non-issue you know you might have to go and pay a fine Leicester have paid a fine but yeah, they've, they've won the Premier League. Bournemouth have paid a fine, but yeah, that fine worked out as four and a half million pounds, and they've been in the Premier League for three seasons. Well, that that's absolute peanuts compared to what you can earn. So the reason why lots of clubs are in a, f- a financial fair play pickle now is that they've they've made those losses of thirty nine million in in three years or less, um, and now the EFL is coming down fairly hard. So uh, Birmingham are currently subject to an embargo uh, for players, and, and the reason for that was that they were actually running a fairly tight ship, 
Um, but then Harry Redknapp became manager, and having Harry Redknapp as your manager, it's a bit like letting Sean Ryder uh, let loose in, in a crack cocaine uh, lab. You know, it's, it's just such a such a dangerous thing to do. Um, and and he's he, he just went completely crazy in terms of the players he signed. He then disappeared. Uh, you know, a few months later. And, and the club's now having to pick up the pieces in terms of, you know, Gary Monk's got his, his hands tied during this summer. But from just looking as a, as a fan and as a... Well, from a fan's perspective, sorry, and a critical perspective, why is the EFL governance around financial fair play so much tighter than it is on the, the fit for purpose for the owners? As you were talking about, owners just want to throw money in and they don't really care about the consequences and then you might get some owners that will chuck money in and then it all goes wrong and then they'll try and sell up and run away and they leave the club in a mess or then you have what's happening at Blackpool there's a bit of a revolution with people not want, not, not going to games there's the not a penny more campaign going against the owners that have taken all the money why is there such a difference between financial fair play and fit for purpose are they not both on the same wavelength why not well I, th- I think they are they are different because it's actually very difficult to prove in terms of a fit and purpose test uh, to, to justify not allowing a person to run a football club because the, the way that the fit and purpose works is that, first of all, you've got to prove that you've got no unspent convictions. Um, and, and the vast majority of successful business people, they're, they're not criminals. They, they might not be particularly ethical or moral, but you, you can't actually... A legislate against somebody who's a bit of a goon in in that regard. Um, so it, it's very difficult to to push back in, in terms of these deals. I mean, so we certainly are, I'm aware of what's happened with Blackpool because I've had dealings with uh, some of the people in, in on, on the Blackpool Supporters Trust, um, and, do, and I've done an analysis of their accounts and finances to, to see where the money has gone. Um, the, the Oystons are extremely litigious. Um, yeah, they've, they've sued their own fans. Um, and also they're prepared to, to sue the, the football authorities should their ability to run a company uh, be, be questioned. So it, the Football League, to a certain extent, has its hands tied in terms of uh, the owners and managers' tests and whether or not they're deemed to be uh, fit and proper to run a club. Now, when it comes to financial fair play, because the rules are sort of set in stone in terms of, of limits, you, you've either exceeded the number or you haven't. And whilst you can argue sort of over sort of some, there are a few grey areas, it's actually uh, much easier to, to, A, to legislate and B, to, to analyse and verify the numbers. Uh, whereas if you're dealing with a... a a potential owner of a football club, how can you prove in advance whether or not he's a wrong one? So, moving on from that, we, we talked about parachute payments a bit earlier, and they seem a little bit detrimental to the competitive balance within the leagues of English football. Like you were saying again, the, the amount of money you're allowed to spend in League 2 and League 1, but then there's such a vast jump between League One and the Championship. There's now there's not a lot of clubs that do very well coming up from League One, and then the gulf between the top half of the Championship and probably the bottom half of the spending, and then you've got the teams that can't really go up and afford to spend the money. So you've had Fulham and Wolves that have spent quite well this year, but they already had the wealthy backing, and then Cardiff have kind of 
in the best of respects to their players that they brought in, it's kind of budget because Bobby Reed is still a brilliant player, but he's, he's going to be a lot cheaper than your Andre Schurler's, even though he's on loan, but in terms of wages, etc. What are parachute payments? And why do they make it so difficult for clubs uh, that don't receive them to, to challenge? And how comes the clubs such as Villa that have come down and still receiving parachute payments, why do they still struggle financially? behind parachute payments is actually to allow clubs in the Premier League to recruit good players um, with with the a certain degree of certainty that if things start to go wrong and the club gets relegated if, you, if you've signed a player in the Premier League where, where the average wage is now around about two and a half million pounds a year um, you, you cannot really afford to, to pay him that level of wage in in the championship and certainly not in League One um, if you're receiving the, the the traditional level of, of income from the, the Sky TV deal which covers the EFL so under that deal clubs get around about six and a half million pounds a year in the championship and that drops to around about 650 grand in League One and 450 grand in League Two so clearly that's that's going to go nowhere in terms of being able to pay your wage bill for a side which has just come down. So normally, when when a club is negotiating in the Premier League to sign a player, they're going to be you know, potentially spending you know, the average spend these days for a player is what you know, ten to fifteen million, and that's that's for the likes of. You know, Huddersfield and, and Cardiff and Brighton and so on. They, that, that's the market that they're operating in. And, and then the players are expecting something similar in terms of wages over the life of the contract. Um, if you say to a player, we will pay you 50 grand a week, but if we get relegated, we're only going to pay you five grand a week, the, the player will turn around and say no. So it's, it's actually to allow the clubs to, to be able to sign the better players within Europe because if you take a look at the Premier League, even the, even the club with the lowest level of income in the Premier League is still ahead of you know, 15 of the sides in Spain and 15 of the sides in the Bundesliga. Um, and and that's, what, that's what part of the success of the Premier League is that the standard is actually pretty good because even the, the, uh, the, the less able teams are able to recruit good players. So if you take a look at last season, you had... Huddersfield beating Manchester United, you had Newcastle beating Manchester United, and you had Brighton beating Manchester United, and all three of those teams had just been promoted from the Championship, um, and were then were able to do some recruitment and you know get get a decent squad together. You're not going to see that in Spain. You're not going to see that in Germany. You're certainly not going to see that in France, and that adds to the competitive basis of the Premier League, which makes it a more exciting product, which allows. You know, and whether, you know, whether you approve or not of the money machine that it is, it, it's it's a phenomenally successfully marketed tool, um, and, and part of the reason for that is it's it's got a degree of unpredictability. And the money that's in the Premier League now, it's added to this ever-growing number of, uh, sorry, the ever-growing figure of player transfers and TV rights. Even Amazon have jumped in now to get the twenty-game deal after this season. Is the correlation continuing to grow? Is it going to carry on? Or is it going to get to a point where the bubble's got to burst? Because if Neymar's worth 200 million in, in three years, if it, it's, say, Mbappe, 
His club mate goes to Real Madrid. How much is he going to be worth? Madrid have only just come out this week and said if anyone wants Modric, they're going to have to pay 750 million. It's just, it seems like it's getting ridiculous. And is it going to continue to grow in this way? I think, well, I don't think the bubble is going to burst. I, I think what we're going to do is that we're going to reach um, a plateau. And we've seen that with the latest uh, arrangement in terms of the Premier League TV rights, whereby Sky and BT have actually ended up paying around about 10% less for the rights for 2019 onwards than, than in the present deal, which, which expires at the end of uh, this season. Um, there's still opportunities for growth in terms of the, the overseas markets because of the, the, the everybody loves English football, um, rightly or wrongly, and, and I, I think it's rightly it's it's, uh, it's it's got a unique atmosphere as, as we all know. Um, so I, I think the, the Premier League negotiation team are in a fairly strong position uh, to boost the overseas rights, but the. The, the rate of growth is certainly not going to be the same as before, um, and I, don't, I can't see much uh, increase in, in domestic rights in, in the future. I think what will happen is that they, they will try to, to extract more money from fans by using new technology in terms of rights for internet streams, uh, potentially for some sort of... Uh, form of 3D immersive experience where you, you put on a headset and you're in the ground. So, so certainly that the clubs and the, the Premier League and, and the technology people, they're, they're all working together on that um, because if people are willing to pay you know, the, the ridiculous sums that Sky and BT charge us already, um, they will probably take the view that actually people will spend uh, an extra £2 for a, for, a, for a match when you stick on a headset and, and you're in the stadium um, or you, you have cameras embedded into the players' shirts and, and you are Harry Kane for the next 90 minutes, Crazy. which could be a very, very dull experience. <laughs> I, don't t- I take it you're not a Tottenham fan. <laughs> no. no. I, I think Harry Kane's an, a, a fantastic footballer, but uh, he's uh, you know he's he's pretty bland. <laughs> so I wasn't going to ask you, but we may as well talk about. It. I've seen a lot on your uh, social media about the situation at QPR. Um, I'm not fully aware of what's going on. I've just seen bits and bobs. Obviously, they're getting charged. Is it 42 million? They're getting charged for the breaches of financial fair play. What's going on there and are we going to see QPR, who probably at a time were, I wouldn't say an established Premier League club, but they were there or thereabouts in mid-table and we've just seen another another one of the clubs that were in the Premier League crash and fall and are they going to end up probably doing a Portsmouth from getting to League 2? Um, well, to answer your second question first, I, I, no, I, I don't think they're in the same situation. Uh, as Pompey, I think Pompey were a bit unfortunate, um, a bit like Leeds in the sense that they had, they were being pl- played in terms of a game of pass the parcel by various white boys, villains, villains, charlatans, and snake oil salesmen um, who thought that they could make a quick buck by flipping the club. Um, QPR's owners have been in there now for a, for a, quite a few years. Um, the reason why they got into the situation that they did was they were relegated in uh, 2013 from the Premier League. And, and normally what you will do under those circumstances is that you will try to cut the wage bill, you'll get rid of your high earners, you'll bring in some money from player sales and so on. And, and what the owners decided to do was to say, well, we're going to 
we're going to ignore that. So they, they, they actually recruited some really good players, either on loan or through uh, transfer. So they, they signed the likes of Charlie Austin, who's an absolutely superb championship striker. Um, and he's, he's been quite unfortunate since he's gone to the Premier League uh, with, with Southampton in terms of his injuries. Um, they also signed some really good players on loan as well. And as a consequence, they ended up losing £70 million that season wow. in, in bouncing back to the Premier League. But what they did was they then started to use some of the, the dark arts of accounting to claim they didn't lose £70 million. And the reason for that was that the, the owners had lent the club a load of money and they said... But uh, we're going to write off sixty million pounds of our loan, so that will drop the uh, that will drop the losses down from seventy million to ten million, uh, and therefore within we're we're within financial fair play, and, and everything's hunky dory. So that was their first approach, and the the EFL turned around to them and said, "Well, we're not accepting that." Um, so the, the next thing that QPR did was say, "Well, we think financial fair play is illegal," and for the last three and a half years. Uh, they've been arguing that the point as to whether or not financial fair play is illegal and whether it should apply to uh, QPR. And that's why the settlements with um, Leicester and Bournemouth have only just been agreed in the last few months. Um, and there, there was an agree there was a there was a ruling. They went both clubs went to so both parties went to arbitration. Both the EFL and QPR went to arbitration together, um, and that found in favour of the EFL. So it looked as if QPR were going to be um, subject to a, a pretty high fine because the way that uh, financial fair play works is that for every pound of loss that you make above the limit a proportion of that loss gets paid out in the form of a fine. And once you've gone more than £10 million above the limit, it's for, for every pound you spend, you have to pay a pound in, in fines. So it looked as if QPR were going to have to go and pay a £42 million fine. Um, and, and the ruling is a complete capitulation, in my opinion, by the EFL, because, again, what they've done is that they just used some of the... the uh, the creative accounting rules and they've said that well the owners are still owed money by the club and if they convert that into shares that will take up 22 million pounds of, of the 42 million pound fine and then the, the, the other 17 million pound fine uh, we're going to spread that effectively over 13 or 14 years so if, if i put on my financial maths head and, and work that out that works out as 9.4 million um as, as a cost to the club um so if you look at the amount of money that the qpr made from bouncing back to the premier league in terms of the, the additional TV money plus the parachute payments that they generated, they, they've earned around about 170 million from being, from bouncing back in 2014, and they, they've got a, a true cost to them of, of less than 10 million pounds. So it's it's not a disincentive for anybody, um, and the, the the costs which they're paying out for financial fair play, those will be relatively chicken feed for. For the for the club itself, uh, especially when when the club is owned by uh, billionaires, uh, you know, if, if if the if the owners could put in over a hundred million pounds into the club, 
um, over the course of the last four or five seasons, which they've managed to do in terms of loans and shares and so on, then they're perfectly capable of paying a, a £17 million fine over 14 years. Well, thank you for all this. I've really enjoyed this and it's cleared up a lot of stuff, especially around the QPR stuff. I, I thought they were doom and gloom and gone, but it seems like QPR are obviously not. They're going to be there or thereabouts in a few years, maybe, if they keep investing. Um, so, again, thank you very much, Kieran. Um, I've, really, I've really enjoyed our time. Um, if you've not got your tickets for the conference yet, what are you doing? They're on Eventbrite. Get them. Get to Glasgow, right. Hamden Park. Not, ju- not just you, Kieran, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, once again, Kieran, thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. I've enjoyed it, Josh. Anytime. Cheers.